Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Sunday Edition with Anthony, a news magazine show featuring human interest, in the spotlight, movers and shakers, and the news and happening that affect all of us in and out of the ACB community. I don't know what it is about those horns, but it just fills me with such like such a majestic feeling. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Sunday edition. I'm your host, Anthony Corona. Uh, we have an, a pretty exciting show, an interesting set of topics. We're going to be talking a little later on in the program with Deb Cook Lewis. And if you don't know who she is and you're in the ACB community, you need to dive in deeper. Deb is part of the Board of Publications. She is on lots of committees and she is all over the place for the virtual conventions, supporting ACP radio and just being a incredible force in the ACB community. That's gonna be a little later on in the show. Um, before I get to my first guest, who is going to tell us about an exciting event that is happening this week that ACB Notables are participating in, I just want to remind everyone that the holiday auction is this evening. If you have not gone to acb.org slash holiday auction and checked out all of the really cool donated stuff and registered, you have just a few more moments to get yourself together for the holiday auction. Go check it out. Anyway, we are going to talk about Site Global with Alice Turner. Alice, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Anthony. It's my pleasure. And you are an ACB member, correct? I am. I am indeed. I'm um, very active in our state affiliate uh, for California Council of the Blind. I'm active in many of the committees, government affairs, I'm on the convention planning committee, and then also very active in, in my chapter. And then up until the one, um, you know, that, well, actually, even in the virtual one, I've been to many, many conventions as well for ACB. So let's talk, let's talk a little bit about you first, and then we'll get into the event and, and what you've been working so hard to make happen, <clears throat> but tell us a little bit about you. Tell us about your vision story and how you became involved with ACB. Sure. So um, I have a, a congenital eye condition. I have congenital glaucoma. So I, um, for for those that don't know about that, that's a progressive uh, loss of vision. Um, and so I was able to maintain my vision for most of my life um, in, went to, uh, college, went to grad school, um, began my career as a training and development manager for um, a big company, um, Seize Candies. And then at some point, what occurs, and, and this occurs for most people with congenital glaucoma, that the interventions that you're, you're taking on uh, do not control the, the vision loss anymore. And so I had what I refer to as a whammo vision loss. And at that point, um, I went to an agency that's uh, local um, in this area. Um, that agency was called Peninsula Center then, but now it's Vista Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired. 
And um, I took some time off of work and they essentially retooled me. So I learned um, O&M and how to cope and, and brought back my, my personal power and my belief that I could really live my life again. Uh, and I went back to my job uh, with my white cane and continued to um, use technology to do my job. I um, developed uh, training programs for the for the entire organization and led seminars and very supportive organization. And you know, I learned at that point really how to be interdependent in the workplace. That there were things that I could do and there were things that I needed to ask help for. And that was a really good learning um, situation for me, as opposed to think I had to figure it all out on my own. So I had this feeling, as often many of us do, um, that I needed to give back to the organization that gave to me. And so I contacted VISTA Center to do what I thought was volunteer. And as it turns out, there was a position that was open at that point. And so I always tell people I left those peanut butter patties behind and I went (laughs) um, and started working uh, for uh, VISTA Center. And that was 14 years ago. And um, now I currently serve as a senior manager on the leadership team. Um, and I love, you know, every minute of it. I think when you have experienced something that makes a profound difference in your life, then you know that being in a position that you can pass that on and help in many cases to shape the agency, um, you know, I firmly believe in that agencies for the blind need to have leaders who are blind so that we can shape the agency in the way that that needs to happen for us. Um, And for for me and for our agency, technology has really been that platform. Um, It's been very exciting to be a part of that. So um, that's a little bit about my my personal journey um, in, in coming to Vista Center. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, insert a question that I've been asking a lot lately on the show, and it's building towards a series of conversations I'm going to have in the new year. Um, I myself lost my eyesight in the space of 20 days. Um, March will be five years. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering from your perspective, you're, you know, you're working for the Vista Center and, and responsible for programming and stuff. How much how much programming do you guys have for people that lose their sight suddenly midlife that are mid career that are, you know, well-established in their life that one day they go to bed and they can see and, you know, yes. close to the next day or, you know, within a very short period of time, they can't. Yes. How much programming do you guys have for that? And, and how, how do you prioritize it in the list of things? Yes. Um, I always say that for for our agency, our area of specialty is for people that lose their vision. Um, And whether that's sudden onset or whether that's progressive, that we do that profoundly well. Um, And so there's many of clients, whether it's a situation where uh, someone is even at Sanford Hospital or someone has had um, a vision loss that's been progressive and then whammo, um, what we do is we work with the individuals one-on-one. We do prioritize that because, of course, you know, when someone has sudden onset, uh, their world as they know it changes overnight, literally. And so there's a lot of trauma that's associated with that. 
Uh, so our social worker would go directly to that person, uh, whether it's wherever they are, um, and then prioritize needs. Um, and so sometimes the needs are coping needs. Um, so we need to get them um, set up with a social worker to just get through those first couple of days of coping to the, you know, for the vision loss. And then the practical piece, you know, comes in. Um, everything from orientation mobility to grounding the person to teaching them that all of the daily functions of life. Um, and then, then we'll layer in technology. And if a person um, is working, then we manage that process where we'll work with them at the workplace, we'll help them to adapt to the work situation, uh, we'll help to coach them through conversations that they would need to have um, with employers. And I can tell you all of those things happen for me. So um, we do it very, you know, we do it very, very well. And one of the things that I do believe that happens is that when you help someone that's um, in the midst of their career, which was me, I, I, I was rising up in the management at SEAS um, and I was helping doing strategic planning. I was doing very exciting things. And then all of a sudden I couldn't do anything because I went from seeing you know, a good amount, functional vision, to not seeing at all, to getting a little bit of light perception back. Um, and when you need to learn not only how to get to the office, right, but then yeah. how do you operate all the equipment? And um, so uh, I had people come in, they loaded up my computer, that was through DOR as well. Um, but the instruction uh, mostly came from the staff at Vista Center. Um, and I think the thing that has to happen um, when someone is in that place in their life it's balancing building the skills. And so I call that, you know, bringing the blindness and the competence skills to play, but also inserting compassion and letting the person know that today you're feeling great and you're gonna take on the world. Well, we may work tomorrow and you're not feeling so great. And so our staff is really, really good at, at um, managing that journey with the person. If you don't mind my asking, um, what was your grieving process like? Oh, well, so I went through, um, so our social workers um, work on that, um, I'm forgetting the name of the, of the couple, the um, seven stages to vision loss. Um, and I, I, I went through every single one of them. Um, and I stayed in denial for quite a hefty amount of time. Um, yeah. You know, so for example, um, with, with uh, glaucoma, you're losing your peripheral vision, right? And so I would be out with family and friends and the lighting would be just right. And I'll be, no, I'm fine. I'm, I'm not going to miss that step. Um, and they're meanwhile holding their breath as they're walking next to me. And, you know, because I can be a force to be reckoned with, you know, they weren't going to mess with me. And then there would be another day where it's glary or something. And then I would say, you know, I do need sighted guide. So <clears throat> that made it challenging for me because I never knew where I was on a given day in that spectrum to um, challenging to my family. But one turning point I think that happened for me was orientation and mobility is that when I started to learn those skills um, when I do presentations I often say that I lived near El Camino Real and without knowing how to do it crossing El Camino is like crossing the Nile for God's sakes you just hope you get to the other side 
And so when I learned the techniques, I learned how to use Caltrain, uh, which is you know part of our transit here, and um, learned how to just walk down the street and hold my head high. Uh, that was one significant layer of confidence that came back. Um, and then I think progressive vision loss or sudden onset, it's, it can be series of losses. And so the other big loss for me was not seeing print. And so I went from being using Zoom text to needing to learn, you know, JAWS. And I was working at Vista Center when that happened. And, you know, I had plenty of blind colleagues that's just throw away that darn mouse. It's not going to help you anymore. Um, and so, you know, I buckled <laughs> yeah. down and I learned JAWS. And, you know, now everything that I do is technology. You know, I, um, it's, it's so profound as to how it is that has enabled me to rise in my career at the agency that, but we hate change, right? And so when you have to buckle down and learn that you have to do something differently, until you get to mastery, it feels like you're back in school again. But when you get to that mastery point, then it's just, you know, it's, it just becomes you. Well, I got to say that this, that this warms my heart. I wish that there were more um, Vista centers around the country yeah. because it's, it's definitely not the same journey. I, I, um, I lived most of my life I, in New York City, uh, born and raised in Staten Island, lived in various other places during college, et cetera, et cetera. But I thought in a plea, you know, in New York City, everything was going to be available to me exactly when I needed it. And you know, I, I originally just kind of right out of the gate, I need orientation. I need to know how to get, you know, back to work and this and that. And, but um, there was no, there was no grieving process. There was no talk of how I was feeling or anything. It was just keep moving and how to get to work, you know, how to yeah. get back to work. Um, and then after I had gotten my guide dog and, and I, I was still looking for work, but there was no more orientation mobility. There was no more JAWS classes. I was like, oh man now what I, you know, yes, I'm not yeah. finding the job. I've got all this time on my hands and suddenly I'm noticing all the things that I miss doing that, you know, I must've subconsciously mm -hmm. missed it along the way, but it was just so busy taking care mm -hmm. of what I needed to take care of. And somebody had said, well, did you grieve? And I'm like, uh, no, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I'm still alive, but you know, it, it just, and then later on that same day, I was like, wow, no, I didn't grieve. I didn't go through this. I didn't mm -hmm. really examine how, how I felt and who I was. But that is a conversation that I am working towards. I'm going to do, like I said, a series. I'd love for you to come back and talk with us when we, uh, when we talk yeah, about the subject. You know, I, and I, I think it's critical because um, when, when we bring someone through various programs, part of the things that we'll do is bringing them into support groups or individual counseling, depending upon the need uh, for the individual. And I took advantage of both. And the counselor that I worked with was blind um, and she has uh, retinitis pigmentosa. So she had experienced vision loss in her, her own life. And when I returned to work, I thought, great, I'm back to work. But you know what? Managing those conversations, those were hard. And, you know, I needed to have coaching and I needed to have support and I needed to go in there and just say, can you believe what this person said to me? Um, and the yeah. same thing with support groups is that support groups, for me, a support group was a place to not only get support, but to laugh. 
So to grieve and laugh, because my family was very supportive. But, you know, there's some funny things that happen to you when you first lose your vision. Um, and yeah. if you don't get a chance to talk about the fact that you almost sat on someone on Caltrain, you know, and laugh about that, um, you know, and, you know, you would think, well, I said, is anyone sitting here? And no one said anything. So I thought the seat was open until I went to sit down and someone went, whoa, I'm like, well, speak up, man. But, you know, the, the, um, if I said that to my brothers, they would be mortified. But I said that to the support group and they laughed hysterically with me. So it's that yin and yang of life that, you know, they cried with me and they, and they laughed with me. And, and you need that when you go through those stages of, Old life versus new life. You know, what does that look like? Yeah. I remember I was taking, um, I was taking Jaws classes and, um, you know, in Manhattan. So it's a, a ferry, a train, a bus, et cetera, a walk. And it was just one of those days I missed all the connections. I, I you know, it, yes. I was two, you know, two inches from the door of the subway. And I had taken the subway at that point, you know, blind for, for months, you know, and I literally with the cane walked the cane was going into the door and my left side, all, the whole side hit as I'm walking in. And I'm just like, oh, man, I, you know, everybody must be staring at me immediately. People are like, here's a seat. Here's a seat. Like poor blind yeah. guy. And by the time I got into class, I just broke down. Yeah. And and that was, yeah. you know, well, did you grieve? No. And, and in that moment, there was no understanding like what she was talking about. It was just like, I, I have to go home. Like, I, There's nothing left. I've got nothing left. Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, let's segue for the into the topic that you're here to talk about. Tell me about the conference. Okay, I will be. I I have to say, <laughs> Anthony, uh, my family and my friends and everyone around me, they say, you know, December second is not Christmas, Alice. You know, <laughs> but <laughs> I kind of I kind of feel that way because we've been working on this for the last six months. So, just to give you a little information about leading up to Site Tech Global. Um, Vista Center has hosted technology conferences for years. And they started off as being a, um, a showcase for current products. So we would invite all of the technology companies and they would come and talk and we would highlight the very first one, believe it or not, was about smartphones. Um, and that was years ago when smartphones were first coming out. Um, and then, so we had them every year. It was, um, it was started by, a, um, the concept began um, by a, uh, a blind board member, Walt Ranieri. And then last year, so in 2019, we switched it up a little bit and changed it from just uh, what I would say, client focus, here's what's going on in the technology world right now. Small, you know, um, maybe 200 people would come to a significant conference where we uh, contacted the companies that we've been working with. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that a, a little later, but the technology companies that are focused on accessibility. And instead of talking about products, we came up with panels. So they talked about concepts. So we had recreation and um, Susan Glass was a part of that panel. And she talked about the audio description project. Uh, we had a panel on autonomous vehicles, and we have a relationship with Ford, um, and they invite, they, we invited Lyft and also other companies focused, and they talked about that. 
um, we had a panel on employment. So it went from product to concept. And then embedded in that was what does technology do to make those concepts and those and uh, come to life? And it was very successful. And so we thought, this is great. You know, we're moving along on that continuum. And that was also the first time that we turned the uh, event into a fundraiser. Um, and then just something fantastic happened. We have a board member, um, Joan Desmond, uh, who's been serving on our board. She was also a, um, a previous client. And her husband is Ned Desmond who worked for TechCrunch uh, for um, many years, eight, I believe, nine, nine years, 10 years. And during, so he's the chief operating officer of TechCrunch um, that's owned by Verizon Media. And his sole purpose was putting on events, um, everything around robotics, technology, anything and everything um, all over the world, um, anything, 5,000 to 20,000 participants in these events. And, wow. uh, we started talking, um, at a, one of our fundraisers and he said, I really want to help. Um, and so for all of you out there in nonprofit, when someone like that comes to you and says, I really want to help, I was You just, grab them now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he was originally from the East coast. I started talking about the East coast. It was just, I, 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 you know, but he was already in, you know, I didn't need to sell him at all. And then uh, COVID hit, we were starting to do the planning. And he said, this is going to be the opportunity to put on the best virtual conference. And uh, you won't have to worry about a venue. And if we make it global, I can sell it to the big companies because they will be in front of thousands of people as opposed to 200 people in Northern California and Silicon Valley. And so that's how it started. And um, Ned has uh, amazing contacts. We pulled together a programming team. So we had Jim, Jim Fruchterman from Benetech, um, Larry Goldberg from Verizon, um, Matt King from um, Facebook, and Will Butler from Be My Eyes. And then one of our board members, Professor Roberto Manducci, who um, works on uh, technology and teaches technology um, in his PhD classes. And that's where, um, and then myself and John Glass, who many of you may know. Uh, and then we started uh, crafting out what the programming is going to be and then reaching out. Um, and the thing that's different about SiteTech Global that we had this vision for is that there's conferences for researchers, right? Because I, I work with some Microsoft researchers and they could work on a product that never comes to market, you know? And so that's a whole group of people. Um, and then there's conferences for <clears throat> technologists and designers. Um, and then there's conferences for consumers, but there's never really one where all three of those are on the stage at the same time. And that was the premise behind Site Tech Global. Um, so it's two days, December 2nd and 3rd. Um, it's all virtual. Uh, it's global. We have 14 countries that are represented in participants. And as of yesterday, I heard that we have 1,835 people registered, which nice. is fabulous. Um, it's free because we wanted everyone who's blind or visually impaired uh, to have easy access to it. Um, it is a fundraiser. So that has been my job working with Ned for 
um, helping the companies who are presenting us with their amazing speakers uh, to also help to, to fund. And the funding goes directly to the programs for Vista Center. Um, and so it it is, uh, it's quite a program. Uh, we have, um, I'll tell you more about it, but let me see if you have any questions for me, Anthony, first. Well, the one thing that um, I definitely want to make sure is highlighted is you guys built the platform from the ground up to make sure that yeah. it's going to be as this as yep. inclusive as possible. Yes. Uh, there's been dry runs, testing. Exactly. Um, you know, when you when when you leave the gate the morning of December 2nd, you guys are leaving at, you know, at stellar quality with, you know, with a, a system in place that will leave no one out. Um, we were so, so talk, committed to that. Yeah. So, yeah, so committed to, to that. a little bit about the process to getting, well, you know, to making sure that everybody who's blind and visually impaired who participates is going to feel like they're at Yep. You know, they're at yeah. the conference. And I, th you know, I think this is going to be a, um, a you know, a case uh, to use to go out to event platforms and say, you know, um, the world is going virtual and the world includes people who are blind or visually impaired. So giddy up. <laughs> I mean, basically, <laughs> uh, because what we found is that there were accessibility conferences put on by major organizations that focus on um, accessibility. And I won't name either one of those two, but they both failed miserably in having people who are blind or visually impaired be able to have access to the platform and get in and register and take advantage of it in the same way that um, a sighted participant would. So we all said that is not going to happen to us. Um, and so we built, we were, we were looking at some of the, what is called event platforms where people can come in. So not Zoom, right? But people can come in, they can go to breakout rooms, they can do a variety of different things. And that just, uh, what it wasn't going to happen. Um, Ned had some very serious talks with folks, um, hop in, there's quite a few. And they all said, you know, I would love to tell you that we're seamless, but we're not. And no one wanted to be on a virtual stage and fail. So they weren't signing up for it. So we said, fine, okay, then we, then we'll, um, we, uh, Ned has a, uh, a gentleman that built the event website. And then he also built what is essentially going to be the platform for when the programming runs. And so it, we had to take away some of the bells and whistles where you could do some, you know, snazzy breakout sessions and uh, um, group people together with like interests and pop them into a room and take them out. You know, we had to take those away and just cover what is most important. And what's most important is to get onto the website and or the platform, which is the website and partake in the main stage activities, go to a breakout session, and then also ask questions and comments. Uh, so that's, that's what we built. And in that process, we also learned, um, we opened ourselves up for comments. And so when someone had trouble registering, um, even though we tested it, we had people using JAWS, there were some people that were still struggling we put in another way to register, which was just a Google cheat. So instead of when, when I would say when comments or um, criticisms came to us, instead of saying, we're doing the best we can, we fixed it. 
uh, and um, that was a universal uh, mindset throughout the whole program. Um, and then our, our final stage that I think we heard from the community, there were many ACB people because I recognized their names when I looked at the participants mm -hmm. that came uh, to this session, but we offered two sessions and we set up a um, kind of a dummy um, uh, platform. So we had a main stage, we had a breakout session, and then we had uh, the question and answer. Um, it's, it's Slido, which is a question and answer app that's built in platform. And we gave them the architect of the program and how it works and how you go back and forth. And uh, they tried it and they gave us feedback. You know, they said the take the play now from on the top of the agenda, right? You know, in other words, in the list of the agenda, the play now was before the title. And they said, you know, that's counterintuitive. This was last week. And so they're they're working on switching that now for the conference. And so every single aspect, um, you know, of the nothing about us without us uh, came through because, of course, all of those comments came from screen readers. And there is, so um, yeah, there's training and um, and videos available for participants to yep. kind of get used to beforehand as well. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, we, we recorded those sessions and put that on the on the website. Um, and um, so. For, for anyone interested in just getting a, a, a preview of what to expect, you know, expect, I know Anthony put it in the program, but it's site, S-I-G-H-T, tech, global, one word, dot com. And you'll see the agenda. And in the agenda, it uh, covers, um, there's a couple of ways to toggle through it. You can sort by um, just having everything all on one agenda in a sequential way, and that would be based on time. Or you can sort by stage. So if you just want to know what the breakout sessions are versus the main station, um, main stage. Um, and then as soon as you sort, it automatically changes it, and then you can go back up and sort again um, in the way. But the the people that we have and the concepts uh, that we have are so exciting. It's going to, I think, pique the interest. Um, there is several sessions on AI. Um, there is many sessions that have to do with looking at the uh, the upside and downside of AI um, when it comes to employment and a variety of other things. Um, we have... Um, Greg Gordon and um, other folks looking at the future of screen readers that at some point we're going to be using screen readers with with voice. Uh, there is uh, there are so many amazing um, uh, concepts and speakers. Um, Apple is going to be talking about what to expect from Apple in the year ahead. And these sessions, all of the main stage sessions are are pre-recorded. Um, so Again, Ned with his amazing um, group of people um, from the production end. So Verizon plus all of these other um, volunteers who have come forward have worked with the um, the <coughs> companies um, and also the the individual the panels and filmed those ahead of time so that. Again, we, we looked at what could be the downside and the downside could be you have Apple queued up and something goes down. Um, so yeah. we decided that we were going to do pre-record 
and then have um, some Q&A built into that as well. Um, and the show is going to be moderated um, by Will Butler, um, who is the VP of Be My Eyes. He's kind of going to be the host that will introduce a, a section and then go out and move on to a next section. But the way that we envisioned the moderator is that he's the connection with the audience. And so something to bring that personal you know, perspective um, to it. And then the other thing that I'm really proud about is we went to all the, the blindness organizations and we said, we want you to be a part of this. So of course, because of my long history with ACB, I reached out to them immediately and they were very receptive. So Joe Lynn, um, who is a wonderful um, coordinator and manager, uh, brought together Eric um, Bridges and also Anthony, um, and they came up with a dynamite breakout session. And that is um, scheduled for the first day about fitness and how technology can be an important part of fitness. But it's also a challenge to the companies about when you're developing an app, take a look and see who it is that you're developing and make sure that it's inclusive. Um, Perkins is having a, a breakout session. Uh, APH is having a breakout session. Um, so we wanted the, the blindness um, community to be fully represented. Um, and then um, on the, on the uh, main and APH as well. And um, on the main stage, uh, we have concepts with researchers as well as technologists. Um, and so they're not selling their product. They're talking about what is going on now and in the future. So it's going to be very exciting. And I definitely, I know that um, ACB has uh, dropped the get up and get moving concept in a couple of spaces at this point, but um, we're going to really be formally talking about it in the panel, uh, I was told. And I, I'm also under the impression that Apple and some of the other um, concept presenters are really going um, in depth to make us understand what, the, what kind of research they're looking at and some really exciting things to look forward to in the coming year, yes? Very exciting, yes. Um, now, Ned... Um, has been involved in all the, uh, the, the filming has been going on for the last two and a half weeks for the pre-production. And um, Ned is a pretty matter of fact, uh, very intelligent, very personable guy. I talked to him after the filming of the Apple session and he was positively giddy. Uh, he just said, they're talking about some things because he's worked with Apple in technology stages for TechCrunch. And he, he said, I have never seen them so transparent. Um, they are, he won't, he wouldn't tell me, you know, what it is that they talked about <laughs> in their panel. It didn't matter what I bribed him with, but he said, no, nope, I'm going to have to wait for the rest of the world uh, to see it. But he came out of that just totally excited. Um, and um, the, the folks from Amazon are talking about the, the future for what they see um, that's going to be going on for the personal assistants. Um, we have um, uh, Lainey Feingold and um, the um, woman, I'm pulling a blank on her name, um, Haba, Haba um, I need to go uh, to my jaws to listen to her name. She's an attorney. Uh, she graduated from Harvard. Uh, she's a disability rights and she's blind and deaf. And they are going to, um, to talk about um, the importance of everything that goes on in the in the in the world as far as inclusion 
to make sure that blindness and low vision is represented equally. And then what happens when that doesn't happen? Um, so we have, uh, yeah, it is, um, human wear is going to be represented. Um, the, um, the folks from uh, Comcast are going to be represented. They're, they're doing the Perkins breakout session about including consumers in design. And um, that's near and dear to my heart uh, because we have a program at Vista Center that I had the privilege of starting um, about four years ago of partnering with the technology companies up and down Silicon Valley to um, provide them with the opportunity to um, either test through research um, with an audience who is blind or visually impaired, so subject matter experts as well as consumers. And since we have a very robust database um, that I can manipulate and pull through and they can let me know what the criteria is that they're interested um, and we pull together focus groups, we one-on-one -on -one interviews, um, subject matter interviews, and um, one of the partners that we work with is going to be presented on the stage, and it's Mojo Vision. Um, they're coming up with okay. a smart contact lens that is going to be very exciting, and we've worked with them from the beginning, and it's been an amazing partnership where um, we, we saved their development time by 30% because instead of trying to find consumers, we presented them with the best consumers that ended up providing them with the feedback that moved them along in their, in their iteration much faster than if they tried to do that on their own. And the good news with a program like this, Perkins is doing it, ACB is doing it, is that it's a revenue stream um, yeah. so that you can then partner uh, but most importantly, it's a revenue stream, but the outcome is that products can be developed from the ground up the right way rather than going back and doing fixes. Um, so yeah. that is um, that was one of the reasons why when we reached out to these companies, not all of them because we have far more than the, the companies that we've worked with, but many of them had at least heard about Vista Center and worked with us and know that we're committed to this accessibility um, concept. Nice. So I want to ask, <clears throat> how much did you pay attention in planning uh, SiteTech when you went through the virtual convention this year, Journey Path to the Future? Were you already looking to see what you know what was working, what may need some tweaking? What you? Oh, what absolutely. Guys when we decided to go virtual, um, it was at that time when there were some virtual um, conventions that were going on um, about accessibility. Microsoft did one. Um, yeah. uh, Adobe did one, um, and I won't comment on either one. Um, and <laughs> the um, and so it was through seeing people that were coming out of the gate that we framed what we wanted to do and what we were committed to doing. Um, and that had to do with easy easy access and complete access and inclusion. Um, and then we looked at and researched what is it that it has been historically those conferences that run every year. Um, you know, so of course CSUN, um, and we're all familiar with that. Um, and just how to differentiate ourselves. And so in the beginning stages, when we started talking about this conference, that was back in May, 
um, April and May, our, our heavy duty, our planning really began in June. But prior to that, we were all researching what's out there and what can we do better? And then what could be unique about us? And I think that's where we found that sweet spot of bringing together researchers, technologists, designers, and consumers and having everyone represented on the stage. So I want to ask my show engineer and good friend Byron, if you can just give a sweep and see if we have any hands raised, any questions yet? So at the moment, I don't see any hands raised, although if, if people want to go ahead and do that, I'm, I'm looking now. Um, and while I'm, while I'm asking my question, you guys can go ahead and do that. Um, I, you know, I just wanted to say, first of all, that right now is if you're going to go blind or have a visual impairment, now is probably the, the best time for that to happen. Yes. You know, n- nobody yeah. wants to go blind. It's not a cakewalk. It's not fun. But, you know, with technology being so amazing right now, I mean, right now is, is, is an adva- advantageous time for blind people. Um, that being said... I applied for a job with a high-profile high tech company out in Silicon Valley, um, and I don't want to say which one, but um, when I went through the process, the the internal accessibility was terrible. I mean, they, uh-huh. they, they're, they're doing great things externally for us, yep. Yep. but internally, the onboarding process was totally inaccessible, and, and all of the forms I had to fill out were inaccessible. And I was just mm-hmm. wondering if you had any um, thoughts on blind people that are trying to enter the the technology industry, you know, which companies are the, you know, maybe the best to work for as far as internal accessibility and which are the worst, um, or if you just had any insights for people that wanted to get into that industry um, who are blind or visually impaired, which, you know, about, about employment. Mm-hmm. I don't have any personal insights about that, um, but I do know that um, now is the time to bring those factors to the attention of the companies. So in the workforce, um, there is a huge push right now about diversity and inclusion and making sure that their 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 workforce represents everyone that is out there um, as a consumer um, if they are if they have a product or they have a service. Um, and then there's companies such as Amazon that are um, committed to having individuals with various capabilities working. And they put on fairs and they talk about uh, people who are working there and why it works for them. Um, and what I know is that it, it's there's so many things that can happen. And you know what? This happens everywhere, even in agencies for the blind that you know we we can be fantastic externally but then internally it's just hey you know dudes let's let's make sure that everything that we produce is an accessible document you know let's just not get lazy here so i think that there's this mindset that happens internal versus external and now is the time to push that envelope um, so obviously not when you're in the beginning or in the middle of a job search with a company because no one wants to bring bad news, um, but I On think <laughs> ACB yeah. and everyone, um, we we have the power now to really talk about this um, with companies and, and to talk about accessibility is not just for your consumers. 
it's for the people that you employ. Um, and I think one of the things that we wanted to do when we brought together um, the individuals to the stage, when we had a choice between a technologist that was sighted and a technologist that was blind, we selected the technologist that was blind because we wanted that concept to be highlighted on the stage globally. Um, so many of the people that you're going to see and, and listen to um, when you're on the stage, uh, when you when you tune in, are are blind researchers and blind technologists. Um, so I, as, as Anthony mentioned, or as you mentioned, now is the time to bring those concepts um, to the company's attention and and let them know in a very um, organized and decisive manner. Um, one of the sessions you're going to hear is about how AI can create bias in the application process, because yeah. the application process and the development from an AI perspective is only as good as the programmers. And if they have a bias, it will rule out people of color, people with disabilities. It will has the potential to unknowingly rule that out. And if you're not consciously planning to be inclusive in, in um all those wonderful online uh, resumes, then you're you're not even seeing the the potential um, employees that can come and and be worthwhile in your organization. So we we have a lot of work to do. I think is what I'm saying. But now I think the listening is there. I want to follow up on on what Byron just asked, and and the way you presented it was like the perfect segue. I participated with one of the big companies, um, I can't mention either, but um, a series of focus groups on exactly that. Um, and this company has is instituting a 10 layer process to make sure that their AI um, you know, research and, and development doesn't factor out on bias um, you know, in this 10 layer kind of process. Uh, really excited me. So my follow-up to what Byron asked is, I believe that COVID really has highlighted, uh, you know, and we can look at it either from the glass, the glasses half full or the mm-hmm. glasses half empty perspective, mm-hmm. but it really highlighted where the inequities are for, for um, members of the dis- disability community, mm-hmm. um, whether it be, you know, wheelchair access or, you know, hearing sight, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think a lot of companies are paying attention. I really yeah. do. And I think that a lot of them are coming from a great space. And I'm not going to ask you to name any names, but are there some that are doing, from your perspective, are there some that are doing lip service and they know they have to be part of the conversation, but you don't really see the internal changes that, that um, you know, bespeak, bespeak, ugh, I can't mm-hmm. that word, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Sure what, I you know, what they're actually yeah. putting out there. Yeah, I, and again, I don't have any personal knowledge, but I think um, sometimes the bigger the company you want to, they, they may have the initiative, but how much is the initiative ingrained throughout the company? I just know in my own work, um, in working on accessibility issues, that when I work with a small company, we, we have profound impact and the impact I see immediately. I see how they change yeah. their design. I see that how they can pivot on a decision point. And with a larger company, um, sometimes the layers of decision-making are just that much more complex. But again, I don't have any personal knowledge of it, but I do know um, just from my own personal um, experience 
Um, I've actually just in my job because I wanted to find out what was going on there in technology companies. I've gone to uh, a job fair that was at a local company um, in Silicon Valley, and they and they talked about their inclusion and how they have people of you know various different abilities represented in their workforce. And I I think it's if they're doing anything to make sure that they're getting the word out that we want to hire you, we don't want to put up the barriers, tell us what the barriers are, that at least is starting the conversation. Um, and then it's going to be up to the advocates because that's another part of the audience for Site Tech Global. We say it's for researchers, designers, technologists, and advocates, as well as anyone that's curious about the arena of AI and accessibility that we all need to work together um, to make sure that we help them to understand what the barriers are, but more importantly, we help them to understand what the benefits are for someone to be in their workforce that can lend some very personal um, advantages. I know Google's doing good things too. So, yeah. Alice, I have a, oh, sorry, Anthony. Oh, I just had a question for Alice because I'm just kind of curious. Um, can you speak to a time that you, you know, just personally um, saw a technology problem, like an accessibility problem, um, and approached the developers or approached the company and told them about the issue, and they actually did something about it? Because the the one for me that I'm really proud of is there's this app called Cody and back in the day it was called XBMC. It was basically an app that you could use to watch, you could use to watch TV and they had all these add-ons like, you know, uh, sci-fi channel and NBC and CBS and USA. All these companies had add-ons for it that you could watch um, TV through your windows or Linux box um, with, with this Cody application. And I thought, man, blind people would really love this. It's, it's an mm -hmm. awesome little media center mm -hmm. application and I wish it was accessible. And so I actually went on the Cody forum and I just posted a forum topic, like wish this was accessible. And ah. I got, I got responses from people like blind people watching TV. That sounds very Python-esque, you know, oh, <laughs> why would they want to do that? But one developer actually said, Hey, you know what? I I'm behind this and I think we should make it accessible. So he made a, a plugin for Cody and it, it actually has screen reader uh, integration. And then the company actually decided to make it an official part of the release. Like they, they took that add on and made it an official component to mm -hmm. the program. Mm -hmm. So it's like, Oh, it's accessible now. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we've had a couple of situations and mostly it's been under the arena of my of my job rather than my personal experience. But um, we had a we have um, tech user meetings um, when when we were allowed to meet right um, in our, our main headquarters in Palo Alto. And we invite the tech companies to come and speak. And so uh, Facebook came um, and they had their. Um, their researchers, as well as um, Matt King was there. Um, he's a software engineer. And so I took the opportunity to go and speak with them and say, you know, I know Facebook is doing things, but I also know that there's some things that are not working effectively. Um, if you ever want to um, get together and we can provide you with some insight as well as some some users' experiences. And within three days, they called me back and we set up um, user experiences and interviews. And that went on for um, three, three rounds of sessions. Um, and it did impact um, the, the Facebook. Um, and then a very small thing actually, but 
important to a lot of people. We have three offices, um, one in Palo Alto, one in San Jose, and one in Santa Cruz. And in Santa Cruz, the Santa Cruz Metro was putting out an app um, for how to um, request a ticket to get onto the bus because they essentially did not want to start updating all of their ticket machines. And so they wanted to go through an app instead. Um, and so our staff in Santa Cruz was aware of the fact that they were going to be doing that. And they were also aware of the fact that there were some um, accessibility issues on their, on their main um, webpage. And so, you know, obviously one plus one is going to equal probably going to be some problems on their app. Um, and so they approached them. And then again, we set up situations. They put the app, sent the app to us in beta and we went through and tested and provided them with a report and then suggestions for improvement. So I think a lot of the times just has to be the right time um, and getting exposed. I mean, I think it's great that you wrote an email and someone jumped on it. I wouldn't count on that happening all the time. I, you know, I think relationships um, are the ones that you can have the most impact. And so that represents about 80% of my job is I'm out there trying to speak with companies and form, keeping those relationships vital. So Byron, if you can take a sweep and see if we do have any hands and Alice, if you can tell everybody verbally where to find registration and the tutorials uh, and what time the programming starts on the second. Absolutely. So it's very simple. Um, if you go to site tech global, S I G H T T E C H G L O B A L dot com, that is the main event stage. Um, you'll see a link there to register. You just click on the register link and it's a, you have two options. One is to just do a simple Google form and the other is to register through Eventbrite. We, we, we tried working with Eventbrite. They did the best they could, but we did experience, some folks did tell us that they were experiencing some issues with submitting. So that's when we put the workaround for the Google form. So the first thing that you'll see there is just the op option to fill out the Google form and then you're registered and you'll receive an email. And the part that's nice, I, I suggest to people to register because what you will receive is an email um, you know, reminding you to, to join, join the event. But then you'll also receive an email after the event with a link for all of the recordings. And so um, both the uh, main stage events and then the recordings are, are going to be managed by our partners who are running the breakout sessions. And they are going to be through their own individual Zoom. Um, but they will send us send that to us. Um, and so you want to register just so that you have people sending you information and updates, and it will be easy then for you to get all the recordings. Um, if you want to go to the agenda stage, you can see what are the things that you're interested in. So breakout sessions as well as main stage. Um, but once you register, you're in. And then on the day of the event, um, all you need to do is go to Site Tech Global or if you've registered, you're going to receive an email with the link that takes you right there. So it begins 8 a.m. Pacific time, and it ends approximately 12.30 p.m. Pacific time. Um, so that's the sweet spot for a global you know, audience. 
Um, and that's the same for, for both days. And that's really and, it. Mm-hmm. And for those of us that um, want to support our ACB leadership, can you tell us when the Eric um, and Friends panelists? Sure, I absolutely can. Let me just get to the agenda. I, I, I looked that out before before we got on, but I think it's December 1st. Um, okay, let's see. And then I also know that um, ACB is sending it out with a link to register to all of their audiences yes. as well. So, yeah, let me, um, here we go. I know it's at 9.30, I believe it's at 9.30 in the morning. And I just can't remember if it's, let me f- filter by. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. I'm gonna filter it by breakout. It's the perfect way of doing it. On the spot. <laughs> we do, uh, once you have that information, we do have one hand raised. Um, so if you so want to- let's can... introduce them now. Yes. Sure, yeah. Uh, I have Beth. Um, Beth, I'm going to unmute you and lower your hand. Uh, you may have to, you have to, may have to unmute yourself on your end as well. Right. Hi, Beth. Hi, guys. And thank you so much for doing the show. And thank you, Alice, for this event. I can't wait. I'm so excited. I registered yesterday. It was awesome registration form using the Google form. Yay! And yeah, yes. I have a question. I like to do advocacy with sighted people you know, sighted friends and get them, give, give them examples of things like this, like uh, podcasts and, and talks and all kinds of stuff. Would it be legal for me when I get the recordings to share those with people who didn't register? Share far, far and wide. Um, One of the things that we're finding is that just based on the agenda, people are coming to us. So Yahoo Finance is coming to us and asking us for the recordings after the event. Um, The... um, I think what our goal is, is to get the word out. Um, right now, did I tell you right now, we have close to 2000 people registered. It's on nice. 18, 18, oh. um, And then we're still a couple of days out. So I think we're going to reach 2000. And I also think that once people join it, they're going to send the link to friends and say, you know, jump on this. This is pretty cool. Well, I'll be signing um, up for sure. <laughs> so I, you know, they, um, the, the fact that um, publications are us and saying we want to put it on our YouTube, um, you know, oh, the wow. more that know about this, the more that we can talk about universal design and accessibility and inclusion. And we want that in this side of the world. <laughs> we want folks to have that in the top of their minds. So everyone is talking about the benefits of that. Okay. Well, yeah. thank you. I- and look to acbvoices.org, which is our new blog. On Monday morning, I will be writing an article highlighting SciTech Global. And um, we will probably, and this depends on you, Alice, do a follow-up article next week to talk about some highlights and put some links in and, and be able to drive traffic as well. Um, Alice, uh, Byron, yeah. are there any other questions? Um, let me take a look. I do not believe so. Oh, yes, there are. There is one more from Dora. I'm going to unmute you, Dora. You may have to unmute on your end, and then I'm going to lower your hand. You should be unmuted. Hi. 
Hi. Hi. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Oh, good yes. morning. Good morning. Thank you, Anthony and Alice and, and the gentleman. I didn't get his name. I really appreciate Anthony. I'm an introvert. I really don't <laughs> mind the pandemic. I like to stay home and do my work at home. And I appreciate all of this Sunday um, talk that you do. And Alice, thank you so thank much. You. Um, so I'm in Reno, Nevada. And next year is when our session starts for the legislatures. And we really want to have a um, accessible website for the state. And, and right now they have highlighted text, like this is amended, you know, words that's going to be changed. And as a blind person, you can't tell which is orange from white. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah. And so we're, I'm looking for some you know, like adaptive or um, universal design for technology, because that's one of the um, bill draft requests I want to introduce next year with my legislature to make sure that the legislative website is accessible. Um, mm -hmm. So we can, mm -hmm. you know, we, we could educate ourselves in what laws are out there. I'm, I just love policy. So I appreciate this um, event going on on Wednesday. I'm going to register and, and hope I can get some information there and share um, There's going to be um, a couple of companies that will be talking about what it is that they do to help out um, to help out organizations around uh, accessibility. Perkins has a big initiative with that. I believe ACB does as well. We do. Um, and then there is a uh, there's a private company um, that's being represented. Um, that was one of the things that um, we were fortunate enough when we were sending out the information. Companies came to us. And so we vetted them and we wanted to have people have the, you know, complete experience of who it is that companies can go to. Um, you know, obviously, I would always propose going to an organization um, mm -hmm. that is of the blind, is that if yes. they have a team um, that is focused on accessibility, work with them because you'll know what they're, they know what they're doing and you're helping yes. out the, the organizations at the same time. Um, but you're... You will learn um, in the breakout sessions what some companies are doing. It's also going to be represented on the main stage as well. Um, and then once you have that that um, recording, then you'll have some basic understanding of what they're doing and how to contact them. So I think you'll get some good information. Thank you and so I do much. Have, oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. And I did I did um, do what I would want everyone to do um, is when you get on and you want to sort, you can sort by uh, breakout. So I sorted by breakout session and ACB is on Wednesday at 9.15 Pacific time. That's when their session is going to be um, held. So Alice, as a closing, tell, um, tell us what mindset you want us to come to the events with. How should we prepare ourselves Oh, I would just say, you know, um, regardless of what time of day it is, you know, grab your favorite beverage, um, sit down at your computer and know that you're going to hear some of the most brilliant and forward thinking people um, and just take it in. And then if you know that there's something that's going on in a breakout session, which I know, I already know that that's going to happen to me. I want to, I really want to see the ACB and I want to see the the, um, the, the Perkins um, sessions, but they may be conflicting with something that's on the main stage. Um, but you'll be able to get the recordings for every single session. So you'll, you, you won't miss, you know, you won't miss it. The other commitment that we had is that during the day of the event, all of the uh, captioning is going to be done by humans. Um, and so um, 
it, you know, it's inclusive in that area. Before the recordings go out, the YouTube recordings go out, they're also going to be captioned as well. Nice. Well, thank you so much for coming on Sunday edition talking about this. I can't wait to have you back to speak in other areas. And uh, we will get together to do a follow-up blog piece towards the end of the week. That sounds have great, a Anthony. great event. I can't wait to see some of these breakout sessions. And I gotta, I'll admit, I am at the edge of my seat. I want to hear what Apple has to say. I have a feeling they're going to surprise the heck out of us. So. I think so, too. I think so, too. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Sunday edition, we'll be right back with Deb Cook-Lewis. It's Thank that you. time of year. Yes, the holiday season is upon us. And with that, it's also time for the ACB Radio Holiday Auction. What could be better than hanging out with a bunch of your ACB friends while shopping for everybody on your list, including yourself, while helping out ACB Radio from the comfort of your own home? You can bid on jewelry, technology, homemade crafts, and those ever-popular food items. All the fun starts at 6 p.m. Eastern Sunday, November 29th, and will be broadcast on ACB Radio Mainstream. To bid on items, you do need to register prior to the auction, and you can do that by going to members.acb.org. All items will be available to view online the week of November 23rd. If you can't wait till auction night, the Sneak-A-Peak Appetizer auction items are back again and will be auctioned off November 27th and 28th. So get your wallets and credit cards ready for a great workout, and we'll see you at the ACB Radio Holiday Auction. Well, I got bid, outbid on my holiday sampler auction, but I will definitely be looking to prevail this evening at the holiday auction. I hope everybody listening has already registered. But if you haven't, go to acb.org and click on the holiday auction and register. It's going to be a lot of fun. Sunday edition is back and I am joined by Deb Cook-Lewis. Deb, welcome to Sunday edition. Well, thank you, Anthony. It's great to be here. It is so great to finally have you on the program from the Juno report to the BOP to all the convention planning. You are all over ACB. So I wanted the listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit for you. We'll talk about your ACB journey, of course, but um, tell us where you grew up and, and how you became Deb, who is Deb Cook-Lewis. Oh, well, you know, it's really interesting hearing Alice's presentation because it actually um, took me back to some things in, in my life that I don't think about every day or talk about every day. But um, but actually, um, I, I live in Washington State and I grew up in Washington State. I was actually born in Boston, but my father was in the Navy and he got out shortly after I was born. So I really don't remember any of living in Boston, but I have to remember that I was born there when they wanted know those official so um but that's all it is is my official thing i'm really a northwesterner and, and have always um, lived in washington state um i um went to college at uh, pacific lutheran university which is a small private school um and it was a that was an interesting eye-opening experience for sure um I've had a, a whole variety of employment. I actually got my first job and my first experience with discrimination when I was 16. Um, I um, applied for a job 
um, actually, um, one of my teachers referred me for the job. They asked him if he would like to have it. It was a music related job and asked him if he would like it. And he was like, no, it doesn't pay enough for me. But one of my students would probably really benefit from this. And so when they found out that, and they were so excited, oh yes, we're, I'm, we're sure we'd love to have one of your students. That, that's the second best thing. And you're probably right, we can't afford you. So this was all going along really graciously. And I came to my interview and they found out that I was blind and they wanted to pay me half what they were going to have paid me. And he wow. said, no, I already told you, you weren't paying enough for, <laughs> um, you know, you're paying enough for a student. Half that is not enough for a student. And he, you know, strongly encouraged me that this was what discrimination looked like and that I needed to stand firm, that I couldn't over ask because my experience level was short and my age was short and I had a few things going against me. But he was not going to stand for my getting half of the pay that they were offering, half of the low pay they were offering, um, for any reason other than my age. And the age of me was not what they were raising. The age It was specifically about being a blind person. So the happy ending to that story was that he, he did prevail with them. And this was long before anything like the ADA or even our, our state has a law against discrimination. And it was actually long before that. So um, this was just about negotiation and it was a very good lesson to learn. Um, I, ended up, um, I ended up having the job and I ended up getting several very, very substantial raises so that by the time I left, I was more than adequately paid. And in fact, you know, when I left, he was retiring from his teaching and he was like, you know, I ought to think about that job now that they're paying. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, it was a very good lesson to learn early and I think shaped a lot of things about my um, career. Um, after college, I, like everyone, sort of struggled with what shall I do with my life? I was a music major and they told me that what female music majors this remember this is the mid 70s so you know life looks a little different now and how you talk up to people and about people looks a little different mm -hmm. these days but in the mid 70s they said well typically females who get a music degree teach you know piano lessons all I could think of was how dreadful to have little rugrats crawling all over my piano it's like <laughs> No, we'll have to get some kind of real job somewhere. So um, I said about that and actually uh, went to work um, as, again, an underpaid. I seem to find these underpaying jobs, but a pretty underpaid contractor for the Department of Services for the Blind, doing what we would call today independent living. Um, they didn't really call it that in those days, and there was no federal program that supported it. Um, but but there was some, at that time, there was a little bit of state money to support it. And so, um, so I went out teaching people all kinds of things I didn't know how to do about homemaking. And so that was my next life lesson. What lesson was that if you say whatever you say with conviction, you can get about 90% of the people to believe you. And we see that in politics every day now, but in those days, it was a little less common idea. But, you know, if I could tell you that this is the way we're going to do this homemaking activity, or you can do it, even though I absolutely know I haven't figured it out. Um, if I could convince you, then we could go forward and you would get it done. And it might or might not be in the way that I 
wanted it done or thought it ought to happen. It might definitely exceed the way I do it because I, I wasn't a highly skilled homemaker and certainly had had no formal training about this stuff. So basically, though, I was able to bluff my way through that and bluffed my way into my next job, which I actually got fired from. Um, <laughs> that's one of my more proud, proud moments is, oh, well, I really had ever happened to you that was not good in your career. I was fired from my second job. Um, but um, that was a really, really interesting job um, with the city of Tacoma, Washington. And that was back in the days of um, Oh, the old CETA program, you know, back, it's kind of the, the 1970s version of the WPA, where there was just a lot of money out there to put people to work. And we were able to get some of that money to put people with disabilities to work. So we did. And um, again, that was kind of bluffing your way through a lot of stuff with people. And yes, I know I have this worker who has absolutely no skills and might not even have any motivation, but they're going to be great. And you better be great, dude, because I worked really hard to get you this job. And, you know, it worked in more it worked in more settings than you expected it would. So, you know, it was a, it was another really, really great bluff um, in our state. Right around 1980, there was kind of an economic collapse, and there were some national ones as well, but we we certainly had one. And the big joke, of course, was last one out, be, be sure and turn off the lights. Um, the state was letting go people left and right. I was a contractor, so naturally I had no rights to anything, and I was gone um, through no fault of my own particularly. Um, and um, so... Um, but I, uh, again, you know, I am a risk taker, I think. And um, so one of the risks I decided to take was to pull out those uh, homemaking skills and things that I had not ever had and apply for <laughs> a state position to do this stuff rather than be a contractor and to make myself really desirable for them. I chose to go to a remote part of the state where nobody had been applying to move because there was no public transportation. There was no whatever else. It was going to be a really hard place for a blind person to live. And in those days, the state didn't really do much about reasonable accommodation. So they didn't provide drivers and things like they might do these days, but they they definitely do these days, but they sure didn't in those days. So um, so this was a big undertaking to decide that, yeah, I'm going to cover six counties as a blind person doing something I still have no idea how to do, but I'm going to, to become the best thing they have. And if I'm the best they have and I'm their only option, it's going to be great. So you know, um, it wasn't how little can you do to get a D or whatever. It was just how how can you raise the bar on this for yourself, you know, buy, your, buy yourself some time. So I did that for the next uh, three years or so. And um, then I moved into some administrative positions and, and came back to Seattle and, and did that. And kind of fast forwarding, um, the last 15 years of my career was spent at the University of Washington at the technology, um, uh, we have a we had a, um, a 
Center for Technology and Disability Studies. They still have it. Um, and I worked there for my last 15 years of career. And again, it was the same sort of idea. It's like, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing, but let's just go out and figure this out together. And if you, you know, can can display a certain level of confidence and a definitely a certain level of willingness to learn, and you're willing to eat crow occasionally when you're completely off base, um, you can you can do exciting things. And so I had a wonderful career with the university and um, I wouldn't trade that in for anything in the world because it equipped me with so many different, I mean, when you're at a university and if you're not faculty, you do whatever you can find to do to keep yourself at the university because if you're not faculty, it's definitely a caste system. And if you're not faculty, you're dispensable and they make it very clear. And uh, so this to me was the challenge of a lifetime. How will I stay employed here as long as I want to? Not ever doing anything I truly don't want to do. So, you know, this was the big challenge is to assess something that comes by you and see whether you would like to do it or not. And if you would like to do it, then you've got to convince them that you can and you will, whether you've ever done it or not. And if you don't want to, then you've got to figure out how to avoid it like the plague and get the, you know, whatever out of here really fast <laughs> um, without losing your job. So so that became kind of the, the interesting hallmark um, in, in that whole process of working with the university. And uh, so... You know, I retired two and a half years ago and it's like, well, now what will I what will I do with myself? Because I needed things to do. I'd always been incredibly engaged and incredibly busy and because it was a center on technology and disability studies. We did a lot of things with technology, a lot of research things. And I have some pretty funny stories about some of the initial accessibility efforts of, of industry and of us in receiving those um, from the 80s and 90s. But, you know, things go on. And so how do you reinvent yourself when you retire? And um, how I started in my, you know, how I got my original job had been as sort of a professional volunteer, because when I when I finished college, I really had no work skill and I was going to have to build a resume. It, it, you know, it was going to have to be more than playing the piano somewhere or teaching little rugrats. Um, and, and it was, there was going to have to be something else. And so I had decided to volunteer till I got employment. And I had four very significant volunteer jobs before my first job so that I could have something to put on my resume and I could have reference letters and I could have. So it just seemed like a natural circle for me when I finished working to go back and look at where would I like to be volunteering. And so ACB is one of, um, well, probably really three major volunteer activities that I decided, you know, I would and, and true to my usual form, I usually have no idea what I'm doing or how to get there from here. But my pattern has always been to just go forth anyway. And so it still kind of is the same. You know, I, I'm struck by something uh, that's a theme from, from you know, your life at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a huge proponent of, yes, we have to advocate. Yes, we need to demand mm -hmm. the things that we need. But until we can get them, you know, I'm, I'm, I very much believe in the workaround, Absolutely. figure out how to do what you want to do 
show mm-hmm. them you can do it, you know, mm-hmm. and then demand what you need along the way. But if right. you haven't given them the basis that, you know, that you're worth what you're asking yeah. them to put in. Yeah. Yes. You know, universally we should have it, but I, I'm all for giving the incentive. Look at the workaround I'm going to do. Look at what I'm bringing to the table and then right. imagine what I can do when you give me the proper tools. Exactly. And now I'm in place. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, everything you've said up to this point, like mm-hmm. ignites that fire in me. It, yeah. If, if you could give us, you know, one or two personal um, examples of how that's, how that's actually worked for you, I, I think the audience would be highly enlightened. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know. It's, um, it, it is kind of an interesting thing. And, and to think that through over time, I, I had a real interest in um, being involved in um, accessibility. I come from, I'm, I'm old, um, you know, I'm 67. And um, um, in, the, in this age of baby boomers and such, it's not so old, but in the grand scheme of things. And when you think about technology, et cetera, yeah, I, you know, I go way, way back. You know, I remember um, the very, very first th- attempts at any kind of accessible technology. And, and I wanted to be part of that somehow. I, I, I was really interested in that. I believed, um, having done a lot of work in job placement, et cetera, that this would make a really, really big um, difference, um, you know, in the lives of people if we could figure out how to harness these things that were being developed. So, um, so I um, basically started advocating for the fact that we needed to, to be engaged in this. And I needed to figure out what would ring the chimes of um, my employers. First, my employer when I worked for um, the VR agency. And then secondly, my employer when I worked for the university. And you know, what employers want is they want to be out there. They want to be visible. So you needed to figure out things that would, you know, like help them Um, be visible. So, you know, I started writing articles for any kind of publication I could get them into, whether they were mainstream or disability or any kind of thing, because, you know, especially later when I went to the university, being published was, that was what you were supposed to do. And so, you know, it was like, okay, so whether I have something important to say or not, I'm going to figure out somebody needs to hear who needs to actually hear what I do know and what I do have to say. And so, um, um, so I think there was a lot, you know, with that. Um, I remember, so I, so remember I said I wanted to, really wanted to get into technology. And one of the things that, stories that I was remembering while Alice was sharing about the fabulous conference coming, um, and which I'm just really excited about, by the way. But one of the Me things <laughs> that I was, one of the things I was thinking about what she's talking about was, so um, when... And I and I think it's okay to use company names because this is also far back in time that you know it doesn't matter, um, and and I've heard them tell the story too. So um, Microsoft, you know, I lived I lived in Seattle, and Microsoft is right across the water from me in in uh, Redmond. When I lived in Seattle, it's farther away from me now. But anyway, when um, you know, I had said to I thought now it would be great if we could 
you know, engage them because this this business with Windows, um, which was Windows 3.1.1 in those days, the, it, this Windows problem is really going to be major and everybody's going to be out of a job and <clears throat> I'm going to be out of a job. I better figure this out. So I started yeah. saying to various people that I was, you know, learning to engage with and finding and everything. Um, uh, and this was even like, you know, we barely had email or anything in these days, seriously. But I engaged with uh, some people like uh, Paul Schrader, who was working for ACB, by the way, at the time. Um, Marka Bristow, who was chair of the um, National Council on Disability, and a bunch of other people who were big names in the disability arena. You know, we ought to take this on. We ought to be doing something with this. Well, so as it turned out, kind of under my nose, the... Um, National Council on Disability decided to have a great big meeting in Seattle. So, oh, right, this is good. They're going to have a great big meeting in Seattle. So I got to get my employer to let me go. So I, somehow I finagled that and I got there. And no sooner had I gotten there, but uh, a task force of them showed up to me and said, we're so glad you're here. We have an assignment for you. Now, am I going to turn down any assignment like this? No. Do I have any idea how to do it? No. We need you to get us an appointment at Microsoft. We want to talk to somebody. We don't know who we should talk to, but we want to talk to somebody. It better be good. And you need to get us all there. And by the way, we're going to have a bunch of accommodation issues to get us there because we've got some wheelchair users and we've got, you know, blind guys with guide dogs and we got all this other stuff and um, got some deaf guys who want to go. We're going to need some interpreters. Um, but you're here in Seattle and we know you can do this. And I'm like, I, I, and I wanted to say, oh, no, 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 you've got the wrong person. I have no idea. But instead, what I said was, uh, well, <clears throat> I have no idea, but here's where I think we might want to begin. And so I said, I'm going to start this on two tracks. I'm going to work on the transportation problem because that will be major. In those days, we certainly had no accessible public transit and there were no accessible taxi cabs or whatever. So I've got to find an accessible van somewhere that we can you know, rent or steal or something. Um, I've got to find somebody qualified to drive it. And, oh, yes, I've got to get an appointment at Microsoft. So fast forwarding a while and all these things were in place um, through a variety of, of resources and people who came to my rescue. Um, and um, we, we had the appointment and we went there and we arrived and we parked in the parking lot and they had no disability parking because it wasn't required. And they had the highest curb to get up into where we were going to go meet. I mean, once you got to the building, it was fairly accessible. Well, we didn't check out the restrooms, so it may not have been, but we, <laughs> we weren't there long enough. Um, <laughs> but but uh, now I wish we had video of this. This was kind of, you know, pre the home video you could do now on your phones. Um, but I wish we had video for this because basically we had a bunch of blind guys lifting a bunch of chair users over this curb and so it's like there's got to be a lot of faith on both sides no i'm not going to drop you <laughs> yeah. over the curb <laughs> how high is this thing <laughs> and so um you know so we we got it and then we had a person who was kind of doing what i would call the audio description for this which was like yeah they're watching out the window their eyes are glazing over so I'm like, oh boy <laughs> so um anyway we did go we did um, present our case and um, 
And what we heard in the parking lot was, you know, this is the best thing that that ever happened to have you guys just show up like this. And we have no idea how long it will take. It took another couple of years. We have no idea how long it will take for anything to turn around here. But this shows us in a real visual way that our problems are really bigger than even our software. You can't even get into our building readily, you know? And so, um, you know, that was, that was, um, that was a really important piece. So I think for me, that was kind of an example of um, just, you know, how do you, how do you start putting the pieces together? Um, Here's the vision for what we need to do. Um, And I'm kind of a details person. So what are all the details that need to be taken care of? You know, kind of event planning. Um, What are all the details that need to be taken care of between here and there to get us closer to the vision that we have, which is, you know, being able to actually use these guys' products and be engaged in some way in the, the design and the improved accessibility of them. So, you know, that's actually the perfect segue for me to mm-hmm. jump around a little bit. Um, you've taken those skills and you've brought them to ACB uh, mm-hmm. in full force. Um, <laughs> you are, you know, the Board of Publications czar, as I like to say. Um, there is a lot of changes that mm-hmm. are on the horizon for ACB. Mm-hmm. This past year, the community calls have exploded. We had a virtual convention. We're going to have a second virtual convention. Mm-hmm. And you've really gotten into the thick of things. Uh, your convention planning, your training streamers, your, your <laughs> all over the place. So in personal estimation, what have we learned as ACB? And what are some of the changes that we need to implement and we're going to implement going forward? Well, you know, I think I think we've certainly learned that we can do more than we thought we could. Um, oh yeah. I think if you, I mean, the last time we all got together in in the real true sense was last February at the at the mid year leadership conference, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, um, so um, you know, Eric doesn't want me to call it the mid-year meeting anymore. So I've partially revised and now I call it the mid-year leadership conference, but we do know what that event is. And it's the thing we do on the Hill every year. And it was a great, great seminar last year. And we sat there and, and we talked about all these, you know, different things. And every year for, for the last three or four years, we've had some kind of, presentation on using zoom or this or that or and and it's been very resistant frankly i mean it's like okay i think i'm done doing these we're not get this isn't working for us we we haven't moved a needle at all on this so um because you know in the environment i came from at the university uh, there was no pandemic when i was still working but we were absolutely fully functional in a virtual environment um and we had employees um, all over the globe in, in our work unit. And, um, you, know, um, you know, we had a, an employee who was working like in South Africa and would talk about seeing exotic animals out of her apartment window or whatever, you know. So, so really, I mean, you know, I had a, a background in, in the fact that these things, you know, could be done. And I think we were not, you know, ready for that until we were forced there. But then when we were forced there, um, we were able to take all of the 
kind of discussion that had you know, gone on and say, oh, you know, we can do this. I mean, whether it's community calls, which, you know, which has been a great asset for many of our members, or whether it's the convention, or whether it's something we haven't done yet, um, or, you know, it, it's like, you know, um, we we exceeded our in, uh, initial expectations. And so I think that is sort of where we are still at, which is what else do we need to do? Um, and I think, uh, one of the biggest challenges that we we do have is that we need to um, provide more support to bring all of our members um, on board to whatever extent they would like to be um, into that because um, you know I still think that we have kind of a technological divide um, that we've done a lot to to overcome. And, and I don't want to minimize that at all. Um, I think countless people have, have done a great deal to make a difference there. But I still think that that will continue to be a challenge for us. And I think that that's one of the areas that we need to focus in on and, and see how we can do that. And part of that is bringing the technologies to the people. Um, the fact that a person can actually call in on the phone to participate in Zoom, for example, is is very good for us, um, but but that's not really all of it. It's it's how to make the technology environment and all the other environments that we deal with actually work for us. And you know, the pandemic and other experiences we've had have, have changed the face of the way things look and how we will work in the future, even when we do come back together again. And that's kind of a known fact. It's known for just about everyone. So how do we as ACB and then how do we as individuals um, kind of keep up with that flow um, and and whether it's whether it's part of ACB or whether it's part of something else, how do we how do we help people maintain? Because it's just even the whole shift this year to online shopping, for example, from the brick and mortar shopping, um, is that good for us or is that not good for us? Well, it's only good for us insofar as those things are accessible. So um, and that we know how to use them because it's not always all about accessibility. It's about whether we have the tools and the skills to use the accessibility that may even be there. So um, I, I think we have a burden of finding resources and finding avenues to help our members um, change that and keep up with that. And it's probably one of the most valuable things that we can do for our members, uh, aside from the formal advocacy and um, other things that, that the organization does. So <clears throat> I, I've always been struck, you know, somebody that is so immersed in technology and where it can go and how far it's come you don't you don't take the standpoint that if technology is not your thing or you know you're not actively exposing yourself that you're you know you're leaving your own self behind you've never really taken that standpoint and, no. and i and i like that a lot um what's what do you say to those out there that have resisted the technology up to this point or learned how to get on zoom but really don't really don't know a lot more um there are various forms of communication within the organization itself. Maybe they just have one email that comes in from the leadership list or, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. what, what do you, what do you see to those folks um, going forward that this is going to, the train is, is on the tracks. It's going to keep going. 
any well, advice one of, or one of my mentors henry ford was very frustrated about the fact that people did not think his idea of the vehicle that went without horses was a very good idea now you know we we pretty much in our society think that cars are are exciting and and one of the laments of many people who lose their vision is oh i can't drive anymore and well we're hoping that will change maybe but um i think i think there are a variety of barriers that people experience and one thing you can choose to do is to you know bury your head in the sand and say, I'm not going there and you better make sure you accommodate me forever. And, you know, to the extent that whatever you want to still do is valid, I'm okay with it. So for example, you will not ever hear me saying, as long as we have telephones, you will not hear me say, oh, I think we should stop allowing people to use the telephone in option of Zoom. But when you tell me that you want to use Internet Explorer or Windows XP or something that is actually not supported by industry anymore, not only do you put yourself at some security risks, and people may debate how much you do, but there's an assumption that over time you do, but also mm -hmm. you put a real burden on accessibility developers because you're asking accessibility developers to support things that the industry is no longer supporting. So yeah. frankly, um, it's not that I don't care about you, the person, but I stop caring about that particular, you know, thing. And, and, you know, um, and why live, my husband is funny because he's kind of like, but if my technology is still working, why should I have to give it up just because it moved forward? And the answer kind of is that because this is all larger than we are computer speeds, you know, double like every 18 months, that's been characteristic for as long as I've been here. And when you think about that, that's a while, you know. So I first heard that statement at about 1983. I think it's true. So the capacity of what technology is able to do and the challenges of it, and I'm glad at the conference they're going to be talking about some of the ethical and other issues related to AI, because certainly as a university um, researcher, I I I have a very int large interest in that and a concern with that. Um, we have the same concerns for people with other disabilities when we talk about um, adult care and you tell me that your dad has Alzheimer's and I say, well, I've got a smart device here where you can watch your dad. Ooh, is that a good idea? Well, it might be, but it might not be, you know? So, yeah. um, so anyway, but aside from all that, I think the, um, the real deal here is that, is that um, I think it's really important to be tolerant of different styles and different experiences, and people have different resources to apply and different levels of help they can get in terms of learning things, um, you know. And I think that that is um, a, a, a certainly an, an issue. Um, but at the other side of that, um, technology is moving forward. And um, Henry Ford won. We don't see too many of the ones with the horses out there on the freeway. <laughs> um, and 
And, and, and for the most part, don't we actually think that that's good? I mean, um, you know, and, and if it is good, then it means somebody, though, had to take a risk to really learn something different and really invest themselves in something different. Because I know from having driven a horse that it's a lot different than driving a car. And, um, you know, some of the same principles apply, but many are different. And so, um, are we are we genuinely not able to move forward because of the economics of technology or because of the need for assistance that is not there that we should be thinking about how to do? Are we doing it just because I have the right to stay obsolete and to put and to actually create myself as a burden on technology developers because it's like they used to ask me all the time and probably still ask the people who provide feedback to them, um, how far back do we have to go? And my answer to that has always been, you have to go back as far as the technology is supported in the industry and you can't go back further. And so that's just a reality, whether you're blind or not, that is a problem. That's a, that's a you know, that, that technology has a planned obsolescence um, and, um, and, and we get carried, we get carried with it, but just to do it for its own sake, you know, is, is not necessary. So, um, um, we in ACB, we really have tried to, to support a really wide range of technology solutions, recognizing that our members go all the way from, you know, college, high school students, college students, you know, our students division, all the way to our, you know, seniors kind of division, our, you know, AAVL group, you know, and, and wherever. And so the, the span of experience, if technology is really changing that rapidly, you know, as everyone tells us, then you have to know that the experience level of all these people that are part of ACB has to be very different. And so I'm okay to try to accommodate that, but I am not as receptive to accommodating stubbornness just for its sake. But by virtue of life experience and opportunities and resources, yes, I think we will be accommodating um, some things for quite a while before they really fade, fade away from our system. So you mentioned leadership slash mid-year um, mm-hmm. a couple of minutes ago. And, and you know, the, the previous February, almost a year ago now, was my mm-hmm. first leadership mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was some spirited conversation before COVID ever happened about channels of communication mm-hmm. and how ACB, you know, kind of revolves in that world and, and mm-hmm. how we could look at things and update, et cetera, et cetera. And then mm-hmm. COVID hit. And I think we all scrambled for a little while. The community calls started to explode. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of circled back on this. And, and just recently at the board meeting, there was a very mm-hmm. spirited discussion. Mm-hmm. So where, where are we now? Um, I, I think this is the perfect opportunity to kind of mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the various forms of communication from national and, and through the affiliate state and special interest and, and where we can and hope to go. Well, there are a lot of people working in this arena, and I'm not even sure I'm the best person to fully talk about some of these things. But but ACB um, has been working on a communications plan, and we I 
identified that we have probably like 30 um, communication strands, uh, ways that we get information out to people. And some of those um, are all inclusive and, and maybe some are not. We found that all information doesn't flow out through all media. And so how do we, how do we you know, correct that? Um, how do we determine um, what's the most appropriate methodology for some of those things? And so, you know, we've, a lot of new things have come about, you know, the Facebook community group, the blog, um, lots of different um, podcasts like the Advocacy Podcast and others, you know, that, that ACB is trying. One of the things that we're also really looking at and was the subject of, of, of our presentation for the board meeting and will continue to be the subject of things for a little while um, is a sort of a collaborative uh, effort between the Communications Steering Committee and the Board of Publications around looking at how effective is our email communication and is it reaching the right audiences? Um, we know that a lot of the people who receive email from ACB are not necessarily, and I'm not making any judgment or, and we don't have any absolute statistical data, but we know that a lot of the people um, from ACB who are doing email are not necessarily connected through Facebook or the blog or some of the other channels. And that is largely because email is the oldest form of electronic communication there is. So, you know, as, as we go along, people have the most ready access to that. You can get email accounts for free. You can do email on just about every kind of device in the world, that sort of thing. So, so email has been pretty accessible um, to the blind community, both in terms of proliferation and literally accessibility. Um, yep. But a lot of the world is moving away from that. And, and many, many organizations have abandoned email entirely. So if we want to keep email relevant, and, and it's also become more challenging to send email because providers are blacklisting email things. And, you know, unfortunately, email is probably the biggest um, resource for electronic spam right now. Um, it's easier to use it to bulk spam everybody than any other form of media we have. And so, um, um, you know, it, it email, uh, email may not be here in five years. And that's not my official prediction or my hope or anything, but just because of the way it works. So, um, so we want to try to make our email as relevant as we can. We want to try to help people um, explore some of the other communication methodologies so that if something else does work as well for them or better for them, or if at some point we really aren't able to maintain email in the way we do now, that we would be more prepared and we would not just be caught off guard. And in that same place where we say, but I've got a Windows 98 computer and I need you to support it. It's like, well, right now everybody still supports email, but how long will they? So been thinking about a lot of those different issues and um, over the coming uh, next couple of months, we will be making some changes to how ACB manages email. And um, those are still a little bit being worked out, but um, we do wanna try to streamline it. We wanna try to have the email be relevant. We want it to be inviting. We want it to be less duplicative. Um, and, um, and we want it to be a, a genuine resource for those who need it. And we'd even like to inspire maybe people who are not getting it to get it because it might be the best vehicle for getting some of our information and announcements out 
um, and, and might, you know, might serve us better than, than some of our other media do. So um, those are all things that we're exploring and looking at. And I think other communication methodologies will be reviewed as well. But we started with this one because we've had um, kind of the most chaos and the most feedback in, in terms of um, how, how we're perceived in, in email. So, um, um, and we know that it's a vital a vital component of information receipt for many, many, many of our members for all the reasons I've said and probably some I haven't even thought of. So um, that's kind of where we're beginning that process. I think what I'm hearing here and, and what I've definitely heard in some of the meetings that I've, I've been privileged to attend is that if you don't want to be left behind, mm-hmm. you're not going to be. If, if you don't if you don't want a form of communication, it's not going to be the only thing that you can get. And that right. ACB is going to work with every member wherever they are, as long as they're willing to work back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and as long as we can sustain that, as long as the system yeah. will allow us to sustain it. So if something happens and the, and the infrastructure of, of communication, of electronic communication stops supporting some feature, ACB will be obligated to do that too. Same statement that I made about the PCs. I frankly think that within the next five years, we're going to see some real challenge to the delivery of email in the way that we do it now because of the cost of it to industry and the, and the, the spam level of it and the, and, and this great struggle industry has to try to keep it safe and, and keep yeah. it viable. So it may be vulnerable, but as long as it's not, we will use it and we want to try to make it as good as possible. But we also want to really be able to capture that value and know what the value is so that if we do find ourselves forced by industry to make change, that we can do that change intelligently and um, and, and and in a way that really works for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's switch gears again and let's talk about the radio. You have a robust radio life. Want to tell us a little bit about how you got started with radio and where you are now? Oh, sure. Well, I actually, in high school, I I envisioned, like I think most of the blind people in the world, (laughs) talk about a stereotype, (laughs) that I might like to go into radio. I was really fortunate in high school. My school actually had a very robust journalism department, both in terms of the written communication, but also we supported people who wanted to do radio. So when I was in high school, um, I uh, was part of a radio uh, communications a class and training group that um, actually um, provided free labor, free labor for one of the local radio stations that probably needed some free labor. And, um, and, um, and so I learned um, how to do a, a lot of things that I would not have otherwise learned to do. Um, I also learned about some of the accessibility issues that I would face, at least in those particular days, if I wanted to carry that forward. And um, so I decided, you know, after high school that there that there probably wasn't enough future in this. And, um, you know, I, I didn't quite figure out how I would get from here to the big time. So, um, so I decided that that was not what I was going to do. Um, so, um, so I went on and did other things, but I still had, um, an interest in it. Um, when, 
ACB started ACB Radio and when some other opportunities like that came along, um, I was again interested, but I didn't really have the time and inertia to sort of set up those things and, and make them work. Um, in 2004, my longtime housemate, we'd been housemates together for 15 years, um, decided to um, invest in a condo and move away. It was not personal. It was just uh, something she thought she should do before she retired. So she um, bought a condo and moved away. And so I was suddenly by myself and just really um, at loose ends about this. And it was actually kind of her idea. She said, well, I think, you know, that one of the things you were interested in before was doing uh, something with uh, radio. And, you know, you don't need the money. You can't go out and get a commercial radio job and they don't exist much anymore, but why don't you look into uh, ACB radio or similar things? So at the same time that I applied to ACB radio to do something, I also applied Jonathan Mosen, who had been the original managing director of ACB radio, had also started his own station and he offered me quite a lot of technical assistance to get started in exchange for that I would uh, do something with his um, station. It was kind of interesting because it was a low power FM in addition to being on the internet. So I actually did the drive time show in New Zealand, in, in uh, Nwangi, New Zealand, which was kind of a funny thing to be doing from here. But I did various fun stunts like a call that one of the takeout places and that, that, said they had delivery and find out if they could deliver to the Northern Hemisphere and, and <laughs> things like that. But anyway, ended up with doing things with ACB radio and um, did that until um, about 2008 and just, you know, things on ACB radio interactive and, and whatever. Um, and then um, um, in that, in the course of all that, I'd gotten married. My husband's career was in radio. He actually worked for Westwood One. He's one of the blind traffic reporters that there has been over time. And um, that's not very accessible now because they do that on traffic cams. But in those days, it was a little bit more accessible project. And so he did that and, and um, had um, been a disc jockey and also had worked writing news for Westwood One, some different things. So he was, you know, broadcasting with, with ACB radio. And um, there were some things happening with ACB radio that were kind of troubling for us. And we decided that it was a good time for us to make, take a break. So we did. And we started our own radio station, which does run some of its programming on ACB radio. So I still have a connection there. And, uh, and that's great with me. Um, and so we started our own um, effort and, and tailored that and, and worked on that. So we've had that since 2008. But I've really been um, doing that a long time. That sort of led then to, um, oh, if I have this equipment and I know what I'm doing, I bet I could have a podcast. So when the GDUI Juno report uh, needed somebody to take it over again. Um, I I did that about 15 months ago and started doing that. So I've been involved in that, and um, so um, it's just been a very natural natural evolution. And I've appreciated learning the new skills and and uh, you know kind of making that all go over time. Well, not only have you learned some new skills, you're passing that information along and and. Um... Mm -hmm. 
uh, coordinating conventions, you're training oh, yeah. streamers and, and getting a yeah. whole core together. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we're, we're in a good seat and, and you're one of the driving forces. So tell us a well, little bit. Well, we appreciate it too. <laughs> tell us a little bit about what it's like coordinating a convention and what you're oh. looking forward for national this year. Oh, goodness sakes. Well, what I'm looking forward to most for national is more time. Um, we didn't make, we couldn't. I mean, there's no criticism in anything I'm about to say here. We we had no choice but to make the decision we made with the number of days we had to live with. So um, we really did what we did in a couple of months. And I didn't coordinate the convention by any means. I, I There is a large cadre of people who did that. The only thing I coordinated, I mean, if you had taken any one of us out of the scheme of things, um, yes. you'd have, yeah, you'd have noticed a problem because there were so many people doing big things. So the thing you would have noticed if I were not there, um, at least last year, is that probably the breakout sessions could not have happened because nobody would have scheduled them. So um, that was sort of a tricky thing to figure out. I Fortunately, I absolutely love data. And again, remember, I had this experience at the university. Uh, my supervisor you know, universities, you have to be visible. You have to stay visible and relevant all the time. If there was a conference to have or a something to do, his question always was, why are we not doing this? So, um, you know, I I had a, a lot of experience um, with event planning, you know, and, and I never thought about that until suddenly we needed some. So, um, you know, we've We've planned events for years, and and Janet and crew do a wonderful job of that. And really, my only task was um, how to virtualize a portion of it because the, the we kind of divided it between the main general sessions and and primetime events, and then the other events. So m- my job was how to organize and and make all of the other events happen. So one of the things that um, I'm looking forward to very much this year, of course, is that it's going to be bigger and better. They've already told us that. And in my sort of personality type, I always like that. So that really does work for me. Yeah, bigger, better. Good. Let's go. Um, So I'm very competitive. I can compete with myself. I know how long it took me to schedule the events last year. So I've set up a new benchmark for how long it should take this year. It better be less. And, um, and um, so those are good, but but some things that we're looking to do behind the scenes that I think are really future planning things. Um, uh, we're working at the national level on on trying to get a, a, an actual database together so we can manage the events um, in a central way because uh, we worked off of lots of spreadsheets and Word documents last year. And I had to tell you, that was just really hard. And um, so if if we want other people to do this in the future, and if you want to make this look like an attractive job that somebody might want after I don't do it, um, it's got to look a little different than it did. So, um, so my personal um, interest is how do we design um, a, um, a system that is um, resilient and flexible, but actually is manageable by um, more than just one or two people on the planet who live in data and who don't mind staying up all night looking at 16 spreadsheets at a time. Um, and so how do we make this manageable and doable for um, 
for people who have more normal interests. And um, so I think that that for me is, is certainly um, one of the big pieces that I think will make or break us for the future. And I, we are trying to move forward with that. And I think it's really critical. Um, I think, that also just um, some things that we've learned um, that we knew before, but nobody had ever sort of really forced in terms of how we organize the convention time. Um, I think applying some of those things now um, are, are going to make a difference for us. Again, we are thinking about this year in a virtual convention, but then what happens uh, in future conventions when we hope they're hybrid again? So um, trying to do some of that planning um, and um, I'm really looking forward, I know, to this event this week because we're going to see um, how this shapes out on a, on a different platform with not as many events going at a time, but still the conceptual piece is very, very interesting to me. Probably the most interesting piece of this to me is sort of working with that conceptual back-end structure. I feel like we could talk for a whole other hour, but unfortunately... <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> Time is an unforgiving mistress. It is the time for me to start saying goodbye. Um, I want to thank you very much. I hope you thank will come you. back to Sunday edition very yeah. soon, and we will talk some more about convention coming up. And mm -hmm. I, I really want to delve into what it's what it's like training and and working on the back end, getting those of us who don't have the tech savvy. I'm now <laughs> streaming, and and uh -huh. <laughs> So yeah. I hope you will come back and thank uh -huh. you so much I'd love for coming to. today. Yeah, I'd love to. And I really appreciate your having me. It was awesome following Alice. So that was that was really great. But um, thank you so much. Tell folks where they can hear the Juno report and uh, if they want to contact you, where they can reach out. Sure. So the Juno Report is um, available on um, ACB Radio Mainstream. Um, it, it airs at a variety of times during the month, and you can look on um, Mainstream for that schedule. Um, and we send out a monthly announcement with the um, with the feature of the report, and um, and the times are mentioned there. It's also available um, on Pinecast, so it's available at uh, gdui-juno-report. Um, and on uh, the Pinecast, and it's also available on ACB Radio to link to from there. So um, you can reach me by email, deb at lewissound.net. Lewis Sound is all one word, L-E-W-I-S-S-O-U-N-D. And um, that's uh, pretty much it. And that is pretty much it for Sunday edition as well. Thank you, Alice Turner. Thank you, Deb Cook-Lewis. Thank you, as always, to all the listeners. I appreciate all your feedback at celebrationac.com. I'll be back next Sunday with another fascinating show. Have a great week, everybody. And go to SciTech Global. You've been listening to Sunday edition with Anthony on ACB Radio Mainstream. For more information, questions, comments, Feedback, suggestions, etc., please email celebration AC. That's the word celebration with the letters AC at AOL.com. Look forward to hearing from you and let's brunch again next Sunday. 